Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Art Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Diana Knoyer. Diana is the executive director of the National Indian Education Association, NIEA, out of Washington, D.C. Through her passion and enthusiasm for supporting Native students, Diana has been the key driver for expanding NIEA's work beyond the halls of the U.S. Capitol to communities across the main country. She's helped shape broader teaching hiring initiatives, created more opportunities for visits to tribal communities, acquired millions in grants funding for NIEA testified before the U.S. Congress in support of Native education, and inspired professional trust and collaboration among staff, colleagues, organizations, and Native nations across the country. Her work has ensured that Native students have the best possible outcomes and educators have the best possible resources to support their efforts. Kanoya directs the staff in carrying out the organization's strategic plan, which includes advocacy, building tribal education capacity, cultural-based education, skilled teachers and leaders, establishing educational standards, assessments and accountability, and post-secondary success. Uh, you know, most of our conversations are around um, creatives and people that are in the art field, but this uh, interview with Diana, she is a mover and shaker in this country. And so um, there's some there's some great stuff here, and I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. So with that said, let's have this conversation with Diana. Diana Kanur, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and where you're from. Yeah. Uh, my name is Diana Kanur. Uh, my Oglala name is Chante Washte Wea. Good-hearted woman. Uh, there's a joke going around the community that uh, that song, good-hearted woman. Uh, so my brother, uh, who gave it to me, changed it and said, woman with a good heart. Um, I'm originally born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I, When I go around and speak, I let tribal communities know and, and non-Native communities know that I'm actually a product of federal policy. So as a Native person, I don't want to be from Dallas, Texas. I want to be from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, where my relatives are from. Uh, but through federal policy, that was where... Uh, you know, that's the community I was born and raised in is Dallas, Texas, as an urban Indian, growing up in public school, um, always seeking an identity uh, in, the, in the public school setting, but always feeling very connected and strong to uh, <clears throat> what it means to be a Native person in an urban setting. Uh, I, I attribute that to my uh, father um, and then living close, very close knit Native community in the Dallas, Texas area. And I would assume that um, a lot of our relocation cities ended up being that way. Um, natives from all across the U.S. being placed into one urban setting and you depend on each other and you kind of share traditions and philosophies and cultures. Um, and then essentially you're creating your own tribe. And that's how it felt growing up in in Texas, in a big city, I had a tribe of relatives that were Comanches, Kiowas, Ogallalas, uh, <clears throat> Alabama Cachadas, Kickapoos, 
Um, but we, we had one thing in common and we were a native person in an urban setting. Um, I powwowed my whole life. That was my identity, my connection to culture. I uh, was traveling the powwow trail from Montana to North and South Dakota, New Mexico, California, Denver March, every big powwow between um, probably 1985 through uh, when I went to school, went off to college in 94. Uh, <clears throat> um, I was on a powwow princess, powwow trail, um, missing a lot of school just so that I could enjoy what cultural experiences are out there in the world. Um, and then went off to college at the University of Oklahoma, originally wanting to be a veterinarian. Uh, I was a very shy kid, a very antisocial introvert. This kind of conversation would have froze me um, as a child. Uh, animals were never judged and they were interesting. I love investigating. I uh, am drawn to the unknown and trying to find a solution. And so an animal not being able to talk, but being hurt or sick, it gave me um, the self-gratification and, and confidence that I could find a solution to save this animal. Um, so <clears throat> through high school and early college, I studied science. <clears throat> um, and unfortunately... Uh, creator said, that's not where we want to put you. And uh, I couldn't pass uh, biochemistry and genetics. And I took them twice um, and just realized as much as I love this space, maybe I could use this power of observation and power of solution um, uh, as a solution oriented person to do something else. Um, I've also been, I, I would say my whole life, I've also been um, very uh, sensitive to injustice and unfair. Um, if I didn't like the way something was done, whether it be to me or to a friend, then I would stand up for that friend. Or um, even though I was shy and, and very scared to speak out and advocate for myself, I would use books. I would, I would study, I would research, I would read, and I would use the power and the voice of other people, historical people, mostly African-American because those are the texts that are printed, but I would use their voice and I would use their narrative to advocate for myself and for, uh, for my friends at a younger age. And then as I moved into high school and, and college, I found my own voice, but I realized through um, <clears throat> reading um, text and books and stories and other people's narratives that this space of injustice has actually existed for a very long time. Uh, I grew up very, um, my dad made sure that I was sheltered, but not naive. He made sure I was protected, but wasn't oblivious to the world. Um, but I realized in college that I was oblivious to the world outside of Indian country. Uh, my grandparents are products of boarding school. My grandmother went to um, Ufala Dormitory Boarding School. Uh, 
and my grandfather went to Oglala Community School and they met at Haskell Indian Nations. Uh, it was back then Haskell Vocational High School and the Vocational Education. Um, and so I knew their experience and I knew my great-grandfather and grandmother's experiences. And I did not know in high school and college that the injustice and social justice issues and inequities actually existed for many other communities. Um, that was a bit of a shock. And so moving into uh, finishing college and a master's degree program, I think that's when I realized this is where I needed to be. This is where I can use that superpower of solution-oriented observation and advocating and using voice. Um, I, I had to take off that shell of protection and, and shy and introverted and a little bit antisocial and um, step out there and start advocating, not just for me, but for the people that don't have a voice or the people that um, struggle like I did as a young person to speak out. So that's a very long introduction of who I am and uh, what kind of influenced me and where I'm at today. Can we talk a little bit about your role today and what, what you are doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> well, as of today, I'm the executive director of the National Indian Education Association. It is a national education advocacy program development organization that's been around for 54 years. Um, its establishment uh, came about in 1969 in response to um, the Kennedy Report, um, the report that followed the Miriam Report of 1928. Uh, and the report basically shined a light on education issues, challenges uh, for Native students in uh, tribal schools, boarding schools, and then in 1969, the, the urban plight in uh, experience of Native people in these relocation cities. Um, our found, founding fathers were, founding fathers and mothers, were um, educated Native people with masters and PhDs that saw a need for change to include culture and tribal thought and philosophy in the public school system, um, as well as uh, transition away from this boarding school, military, uh, Christianity mission philosophy and start incorporating language and culture back into our school systems. Um, NIA was primarily a policy and advocacy organization for about 48 years. Uh, I was hired on to develop curriculum culturally based, um, relevant culturally based responsive curriculum and how help educators, Native and non-Native educators, help them understand how you can incorporate language, cultural thought and philosophy, uh, traditional practices in the everyday standards, state standards, <clears throat> and um, required curriculum. Uh, helping educators understand that our Native students, every Native student comes to a classroom with a set of experiences that no teacher will actually ever understand. Um, I, I think even our native teachers don't clearly, truly understand what some of our native kids go through and how those experiences shape our native students' approach to life, 
coping skills, interaction with other people, but also their ability um, to open their brain and learn their ability to compartmentalize. And we don't have a lot of those coping skills as kids, as adults, as native people uh, in our thirties and forties, fifties, sixties, we don't have coping skills and we don't have the ability to compartmentalize. Um, so I was hired on at, the, at NIA in 2014 um, to bring about a new concept. Uh, unfortunately, Common Core was going on at the time and not a lot of people wanted Common Core in their school, but Common Core did allow very easily this cultural-based education, thought and philosophy to be incorporated. Um, <clears throat> now it's college and career readiness and it's a little bit harder, but we're still advocating for this cultural thought and philosophy language to be incorporated in the classroom, the delivery of curriculum. Uh, we're advocating for uh, increasing in uh, teacher shortage, teacher pay, teacher, uh, native teacher access, alternative education, um, native language to be incorporated into schools. Uh, my policy team advocates in Washington, D.C. for increased appropriations and uh, you know, BIE and tribally controlled schools. So I think a lot of our uh, focus area as a national Native organization is the same focus area that it was in 1969, um, which is sad. A lot hasn't changed. A different administration um, and a different set of social socially, um, social and economic challenges that we're still addressing. And they are the same challenges that we're, my uh, founding organization leaders were advocating for in, in the late 70s, early 70s and late 70s. It's really interesting hearing you say that because um, my father would talk about, you know, because he, he often would go out to council and, and whatnot. Um, and he would say that the same thing people are saying of their needs today are the same things that they were advocating for back in the seventies when he was on yeah. council mm -hmm. and work that was doing. And he was, yeah. he was frustrated with the lack of progress that was being made over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, can we talk about your influences? Who influenced you uh, growing up um, in your career and today? Uh First and foremost, family influenced me. My father, my grandmother, and my grandfather. Um, my father, too, never uh, never stood by when he saw injustice. Continued to ad continually advocated for those that didn't have a voice or those that were struggling. Always let, let um, lent a hand, opened his door. Um, supported and helped anyone and everyone uh, until you wronged him. And I think I, I, I carry that uh, personality today. Uh, I will put my hand out. I will help and support um, anyone and everyone until you quit helping yourself. And if you um, disrespect me or wrong me in any way, my grandmother was the same way. She advocated for herself as the oldest of four girls, um, who, right as a native woman in, uh, she was born in 1920, who
who really didn't have a voice in eastern Oklahoma, uh, Muskogee Creek, full-blood Muskogee Creek, who was forced to go to a dorm, you know, to a boarding facility. Um, and she advocated for herself to, um, to become a seamstress and not stay at home and uh, whatever they were teaching you to do at home ec. She wanted to um, flex her own knowledge and her own power over herself. Uh, she taught me that early on. And then I didn't know my grandfather. He passed away uh, before I was born. But I, all the stories I've heard, uh, him living here in Pine Ridge, um, from the Wombly, the Eagle Nest community, um, he was the oldest of four boys and advocated even back in, he was born in 1917. So even back in the day where you had no voice and you had no vote on the reservation, he still advocated uh, as best he could for um, his own purpose as well as his community's purpose. Um, so I think those three were the most impactful in my younger years. And I guess through life, um, my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, I don't believe it was one person. I can't name a person who influenced me. Um, but the general population um, of advocates, of Native advocates that don't quit. Um, like we just said, a lot of things that were taking place happening in the 60s and 70s, whether it be in education, tribal government, um, Indian child welfare, child health, we're still advocating for right now. And a lot of people would quit and just say, it's not, it's not worth it. If everything that we were fighting for 50 years ago still is the same thing we're fighting for, why continue fighting? But um, I'm influenced by those advocates that continue fighting. I'm influenced by my father-in-law, Steve Knoyer Sr., who fought to get housing in uh, on the Yankton Reservation and uh, advocated for irrigation for his farm and advocated till his death for equity, social justice uh, on the Yankton Reservation. Um, so I'm influenced by advocates, our own Native people who continue to fight, uh, continue to push their voice forward and, and don't stop, even though we, we get a... Uh, we get a small win. We move the needle an inch, um, depending on administration, depending on um, depending on the wind, the direction the wind blows, depending on philanthropy, um, foundations, and what their purpose and direction is. We continue to advocate, and, and that's what influences me and keeps me going in the job that I do with NIA. But as a as a native person. Um, I will continue to advocate. Can you talk about um, how you've developed your career? Uh, maybe what? Well, you, you touched on what drew you into into college initially, um, but yeah, uh, college, post college. Yeah, how have you developed your career? Um. <clears throat> Well, it goes back to social justice, um, not wanting to see inequities and, and 
continued to advocate. Uh, so as I transitioned away from being a veterinarian, uh, I found myself not really wanting to teach. I didn't, I never had an interest or a, a passion for following a structured curriculum and, and being tied to a classroom. And a, uh, I, I don't have the patience. And this is back in the, the, the 90s when I graduated with my undergrad. I didn't have the patience for children at that time of any age. Uh, but I did see, okay, the place to influence change is to educate the next generation. And so I became an educator, a classroom teacher, and realized uh, that that is not where my talents lie. Um, and I was very upset, and this is in Oklahoma public schools, I was upset with the public school system and realized that that's not where change happens at the school level, at the classroom level, at the district level. Uh, so I moved up to the state level and I realized, okay, well, you can't change state education policy uh, that affects Native students until you change what happens at a tribal level, until you can influence tribal, tribally controlled schools, bureau schools, but until you can influence the tribe. And so I was able to move home to Pine Ridge, and I worked at our tribal college. And then I realized that that's not where it's at either, because our tribal leaders tribal council don't have the education capacity. And I don't want to say anything disrespectful on this, uh, on this podcast, but I want to be honest and say, until our tribal council value the white man's education and Western education, then their own tribal capacity and the ability to run their own schools, the ability to, um, create a school system that doesn't follow the American education system. That system doesn't work for us as native people. We have to crack that system open. We have to turn the system upside down. We have to come at it from a different angle and a different philosophy. But until our tribal council and our school boards don't realize that until they approach that with, through a different lens in a different approach, we're going to continue to hang feathers and put beads and call it a native education system when it's still the same American um, education system that creates good American citizens. And I realized that at the tribal college level, that this is not the place where change happens either. And I had the opportunity to apply for this position, and I realized at that point Change happens at the federal level. You have to be maybe not in D.C., but you have to be sitting at a national level to impact change at my tribal level, which doesn't make any sense to me then, and it still uh, doesn't make a lot of sense now. But I see more change coming at this national level and influence than I have whenever I was at a district, state, or tribal level. Um, so I think my trajectory has always been, I'm not going to get justice at this level, so I'm going to move the next level up. I'm not going to get justice at this level, so I'm going to go to the very top where I can influence legislative policy at a federal level and I can influence policy at a state level.
that's incredible. Um, I've I've not heard it broke down like that before. Um, yeah, that's. I don't quite know how to respond to that. That's. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what needs yeah. to happen. This yeah. American education system that we we all have learned. You and I went to school through. Mm-hmm. Was created to civilize native people to to create good American citizens. And all we keep doing is just reclaiming that good American citizen curriculum, standards, school structure, school community. And all we do in, in, you know, in my own tribal community, we add language for 45 minutes or an hour a day. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's my very, uh, I don't know, kind of hateful and negative way of saying it, but we just put beads and feathers on a system that we're all familiar with. If you went through teacher prep program, it's the same American education system that you went through as a student. Nothing changed. Mm -hmm. So when my question I pose to educators and my question I pose to tribal council when they listen, when are you going to realize you have to build especially tribally controlled schools who have the most power to create their own education systems. When are you going to realize that state standards are a set of standards that you have to meet, but your curriculum, your school climate, your school culture doesn't have to look like every other public school, especially on this reservation. You can do anything you want to. Why do we have to start school at nine o'clock in the morning or 8.30? Why, you know, systems that exist still today, why do they exist? Mm -hmm. They exist because someone put them in place in the original American education system was created. We can turn it upside down. We can approach it through, through an indigenous lens of looking at delivering education long time ago, education wasn't a teacher or it wasn't an authority figure standing in front of a classroom. It was a collaborative conversation. It was coaching. It was observation. It was mentorship. It was kinship. Why, why aren't those systems, that ideology, why didn't that exist nowadays in our school systems? And I know because a lot of people say, well, we have non-native teachers and we have Native teachers who are so disconnected, okay, but then shift back to your teacher prep program, especially at a tribal college where you have all this control to teach your teachers the way you want them to be teaching in the classroom. Yeah, the um, one thing that always struck me funny when I first started at um, the museum that I work, um, not not to criticize my place of employment, is we would have these um, run-of-the-mill uh, workshops. Mm-hmm. And so once I, I had taken over, um, I was applying a more thoughtful approach to this with more purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, I guess that taps into a little bit of what you're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, school structures, I mean, those schedules were set up for farm for farmers, you yeah, know, 130 right. years ago. Right. Know? And so it makes no sense why school stops for, uh, three months out of the year, right. the way it does. You know, right. Um, yeah. Right. So there's a schools, there are schools in the Pueblo communities um, 
So the state of New Mexico is a unique system in they, they have a set of standards, but they don't dictate in curriculum. So all you have to do in all of your schools is meet this set of standards. And the standards are created by the state of New Mexico's department, um, uh, their state department of education. And then <clears throat> through leadership from the Pueblo tribal ed departments, they worked with the state of New Mexico to create a Pueblo school calendar because the Pueblos have ceremonies throughout the year. It's not just the summertime, like in a lot of our Northern Plains communities where we're, we have Sundance and you could start, right? You could end school in the middle of June and, and start it at the middle of August. And okay, all of our ceremonies are now taken care of. Our Hunka ceremonies, our Sundance ceremonies, they're all taken care of that summertime. Well, the Pueblos, they have, Ceremonies in January, ceremonies in April, ceremonies in May, um, because they follow a Catholicism and their traditional Pueblo ceremony calendar. They were allowed to create a Pueblo school calendar. And then all the Pueblos follow this. And the State Department approved it. So now instead of structuring, you have mandatory 180 days you have to meet from whatever, August 15th through, you know, May 20th, you have a 180-day calendar, but now it is reflective of that tribal or that Pueblo community. So there's an example of taking this American education system, turning it upside down and coming at it through a different lens. Now these Pueblo students are not truant. Parents are not being arrested. They're not missing class hours because of ceremonies. Talking about this, it makes me think about the, the powwow trail and the summer, um, mm -hmm. all the powwows that go on. Did the education system, did that influence the, the summer powwow events that we've been sort of following for the last 80 years or so? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, it did. Yes. Interesting. Same with yeah. the like all the art markets and everything. Art you know, market, yeah. 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 Wow. Yep. I never put it into that context. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So with, you know, with this then, how have opportunities presented themselves to you and how have you pursued opportunities? I don't pursue opportunities. I am a hundred percent believer in a, um, spiritual space that creator puts opportunities in front of me when I'm ready to be in those spaces. So I never sought out anything. I would say even this job within the National Indian Education Association wasn't so that I could become the executive director. I really just wanted to influence curriculum. That was it. I just wanted to teach teachers to be better teachers. That's all I ever wanted to do. Um, so I do opportunities like this. I interview when someone says, Hey, can you talk to me about NIEA? Can you talk to me about your, your, your mission, your mission as a person, an individual and the mission as the organization? Sure. I'd love to educate people. That's my passion. Um, especially non-native people. I love to educate and help them be a better human being. 
And I feel like I can say that I'm not, I'm not the best human being, but I'm the one on the oppressed side. And I want those that are, are our oppressors to understand when you say these things, when you act this way, when your ideology drives you into a direction of, of it's okay to be inequitable, I want to educate them and help them know, no, that's not the right thing to do, whether it's for a Native person or any other minority or ethnic group. Um, so I, I don't seek out opportunities. I fall into opportunities or opportunities will present themselves like this podcast where I have an opportunity to educate whomever listens to this story, to my story. Hmm. Which of course leads uh, to, I think probably the most important question is what advice would you give the 18 or 22 year old uh, that's listening to this conversation? I would give him the same advice my dad gave me and his dad gave him as a native person. So I'm talking to native 18 to 22 year olds as a native person. Uh, you have to become knowledgeable and educated in this Western thought and philosophy. Don't lose who you are. Really hold on tight to that identity to your tribal Pueblo cultural identity, whatever your community is, whatever that identity looks like, hold on to that, be grounded in that, but go and learn this Western ideology and this Western thought and philosophy, because the only way we're going to continue to advocate and the only way we're going to enjoy these small wins and successes is if we can still communicate with Western educated people. We have to be able to understand their thought and philosophy in order to change their minds. We have to be able to, as an 18 to 22 year old, you have to be able to advocate for yourself, your identity, your station in life, but you also need to be able to advocate for your future and what you what you want in your future. Do you want to stay living in an impoverished community. And if that's what you want, then that, that's your station in life. And you have to accept that and, and say, I'm okay with this. I wish somebody would have told me between 18 and 25, 22, all these things. I wish somebody said, be proud of who you are. Be proud that you're a native, an, an urban native from Dallas, Texas, because that's a superpower. And I didn't see it that way. I thought it was a deficit because I don't know my language. I had to learn my culture. Uh, the culture I knew and held onto very tight was a powwow culture, very pan Indian culture, but it was an identity and it was a culture. But no one told me to be proud of that. I had to figure that out on my own, my thirties, my forties. Um, uh, yeah, everybody throws in our communities, we throw around perseverance and uh, determination and 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 I would tell an 18 and 22 year old perseverance is the ability to cope to learn from mistakes learn from people learn from experiences and then do better moving forward 
Uh, I never measure myself with the word success. I measure myself in perseverance. If I stumbled, what did I learn from that stumble? What did I learn from that mishap? What did I learn from, you know, that oops? And if I've learned something and I can verbalize it, then I know I'm moving forward in my growth and advocacy. And um, <clears throat> now I'm the, now I'm representing what perseverance looks like. The other thing I would tell uh, young people, learn coping skills early on. Learn to let things go. Um, don't forget them. Don't ever forget, but learn to forgive and learn to let things go. Um, understand how behaviors, how people's pasts and those behaviors affect people today. I think uh, that would have helped me young as a younger person uh, not be so hypersensitive, not take things so personally. And when you're hypersensitive and you take things personally, you sit in all of that emotional uh, baggage and um, heaviness. And, and now that's affecting your station in life and the direction and your impact. And it's affecting your superpower, whatever that asset is. Um, and I think the final thing I would share, and I share this with my daughter all the time, you have a set of assets that you're born with, that you're given, and that you grow into. And everyone has a set of assets. It doesn't matter what, what your current life has given you, what your experiences are and where you are right now in, in, you know, as an 18 to 22 year old, that doesn't matter because all of those experiences actually give you your assets that you're sitting with right now. Um, I think of a lot of our, my own relatives and a lot of our relatives on reservations, economically um, <clears throat> disturbed communities, uh, lots of abuses, but I look at our young people and they do have lots of perseverance and they do have a lot of assets. And I think that's a problem with our school systems on reservation and public schools that we don't tap into those assets and we don't help our young people see their assets and their strengths. Uh, so anytime I get to talk to young people, I talk about that as a superpower. You have superpowers that I don't have. You have the ability to maybe to understand and um, sympathize or empathize with people that I don't have that ability. That's a superpower. Now, how do you take that superpower and turn that into uh, growth for yourself? And how do you turn that into moving you as a person through life to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve? Dana, thank you so much for that. Uh, and thank you so much for being on this episode. Uh, this was this is really great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's enjoyable talking with you uh, in a different space. <laughs> Normally we're talking about art. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Diana again for her time and sharing her story with us. This, this was a powerful conversation. Um, the, the point that she made about uh, wanting to make change, but realizing where she needed to be to make that change is an incredibly powerful story. It's, 
it's an example for all of us that um, we, we don't need to accept the position that we're placed into and the place that people uh, try to settle us. Um, she she knew what she wanted to do, and she has that inner courage and strength to be able to to put herself in those places uh, where change happens and to be a part of that conversation and to have a seat at that table. And she is one of the most influential people in this country, and I, I can't underscore that. Um, it was truly an honor to be able to sit down and have this conversation with Diana. Uh, you know, uh, for clarity uh, for this for the for the listener, um, she's been uh, a personal friend for 20, 25 years now. Um, someone I've known for a very long time, and to see her grow from uh, when I knew her at college at USD to where she is today um, has been an absolute joy and frankly an honor uh, to be able to share space with her. So, uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, for this conversation and that and what you do for education in this country. Uh, you, you truly are um, a mover and shaker uh, as a definition of what this program is. So thank you. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our conversation. So please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on our Facebook page uh, and Instagram, which is called Five Plane Questions, or at the planesart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please find us on Facebook and message me. I'd really like to hear from you. All right, that's it. You take care, and we will see you next week. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts